Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter issue on new recommendations for heart in HIV. With us today is that issue's author, Dr. Joel Gallant, adjunct professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Gallant is also associate medical director of specialty services at Southwest Care in Santa Fe, New Mexico. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from ADTHE, Merkin Company, Inc., and VIIV Healthcare. Learning objectives for this audio program include list the currently recommended antiretroviral regimens and discuss the data supporting their use, discuss the approach to patients with absolute or relative contraindications to nucleoside analogs, and describe a patient for whom a protease inhibitor-based regimen might be chosen for initial antiretroviral therapy. Dr. Gallant has indicated that he has received grant and or research funding from Abvi, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Gilead Sciences, Merkin Company, Sangamo Biosciences, Vertex Pharmaceuticals, and VIIV Healthcare. He has served as a consultant or advisor to Bristol-Myers Squibb, Gilead Sciences, and Janssen Therapeutics, and he's been a paid member of the committee, panel, and board at Takara Bio. He has also disclosed that his discussion today will reference the unlabeled or unapproved uses of a once-daily formulation of ritaglavir, adalutegravir, abacavir, lamivudine single-tablet co-formulation, tenofovir alafenamide, or TAF, in various co-formulations, and deravirine, also known as MK1439. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Gallant, thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be here, Bob. Thank you. In your newsletter issue, doctor, you reviewed the current guidelines for initial antiretroviral therapy in patients infected with HIV, as well as some of the recent studies describing more effective, better tolerated, and more convenient first-line art treatment options. Today, I'm going to ask you to translate how some of those new findings can be incorporated into clinical practice. Uh, So if you would, Dr. Glant, start us off with a patient description. The first patient is a 36-year-old accountant with recently diagnosed HIV infection. He has a CD4 count of 532 and a viral load of 136,500. His genotype shows wild-type virus. He has a negative hepatitis C antibody and a negative hepatitis B surface antigen with normal liver enzymes and kidney function. He's otherwise healthy but takes over-the-counter omeprazole for gastroesophageal reflux disease, and he also takes a multivitamin. He's single but sexually active with male partners. He's been consistently using condoms since learning of his HIV diagnosis. And he's willing to start antiretroviral therapy if it is recommended and feels that he can be adherent but would like a simple, well-tolerated regimen. So he's willing to begin antiretroviral therapy. Would you recommend it for this patient? Yeah, I definitely would. Antiretroviral therapy is recommended for all HIV-infected patients in the United States, regardless of CD4 count and regardless of viral load. Obviously, we can change that practice or defer therapy in patients who don't seem to be ready for treatment or who appear to be adherence risks, but in this case, the person seems to be willing and ready to take therapy. He already takes some medication anyway, so he has a good sense of his ability to be adherent, and perhaps the fact that he's an accountant tells us that he's likely to be adherent, although maybe that's a stereotype. In addition, I think that ART is recommended to reduce transmission of HIV infection to sexual partners. And we know that this man has several sexual partners. And so although he is using condoms, this further reduces the risk of transmission. Which art regimens would you consider in this patient? Based on recent studies, integrase inhibitor-based regimens really seem to have advantages over other regimens and are generally now my first choices unless there's a compelling reason to use something else. 
we've seen this with studies from each of the three currently approved integrase inhibitor-based regimens. In some cases, they're non-inferior to standard regimens, and in other cases, they're actually superior. But in all cases, they seem to have definite advantages in terms of tolerability and toxicity. As an example, tenofovir FTC alvitegavir Kobe, what used to be called the quad, would be a very reasonable choice. He asked for something simple, and this is one pill once a day. It's well-tolerated, effective at high viral loads as well as low viral loads, and effective at low CD4 counts as well as high CD4 counts. He has a a high CD4 count, but his viral load is above 100,000, so that's a consideration when choosing therapy. Dolutegavir plus either tenofovir FTC or abacavir 3TC would also be reasonable choices. The dolutegavir-based regimens have advantages in the sense that there are fewer drug interactions than with the quad regimen that I discussed earlier. At the moment, you would have to give two pills once a day, but that's still fairly simple. And soon there will be dolutegavir, abacavir, lamivudine co-formulation available as a single tablet. Of course, that would only be indicated if his HLA B5701 test was negative. So I think that one of those two would probably be my first choice. In a person where I had more concerns about adherence, I might consider a protease inhibitor-based regimen to start with until he proved that he was adherent, just because it's very hard to get resistant to protease inhibitor-based regimens, even if you're non-adherent. But I just get a sense that that's not the case with this patient. Let me flip that question around and ask you, which regimens would you not consider for this patient? Tenofovir FTC Rilpivirine is a very nice, well-tolerated single-tablet regimen that is recommended in guidelines, but it's not recommended in a patient like this for two reasons. One, he has a baseline viral load of above 100,000, and two, he uses a proton pump inhibitor, which interferes with Rilpivirine absorption. So that would be off my list for this particular patient. Tenofovir FTC Efavirenz is a widely used recommended regimen. I don't tend to start people on it anymore because there are better alternatives in terms of tolerability. So while it's still a drug I use a lot in patients who have been on it and are doing well on it, it's not something that I tend to start off with, though it still would be recommended according to current guidelines. Tenofovir FTC plus boosted darunavir would be certainly an acceptable regimen. And as I mentioned before, it would be probably a, a good idea if you had doubts about this patient's adherence. But he did ask for something simpler, and I think that someone who's likely to adhere to therapy can get away with a one-pill-a-day regimen. Raltegavir plus tenofovir FTC would be very acceptable and certainly is very well studied, but it doesn't have real advantages over the dolutegavir-based regimen and does have to be taken twice a day at the moment, although a once-a-day formulation of raltegavir is in trials now. I would not use a an atazanavir-based regimen or a lopinavir-based regimen, as darunavir seems to have advantages over both of those. And also, atazanavir is a problem in a person taking a proton pump inhibitor, again, because of decreased absorption. So if I were going to use a PI, it would be darunavir, but in this particular patient, I'm not using a PI. Now, if uh, for whatever reason you were not going to use a single-tablet co-formulated regimen, How would you decide between abacavir 3TC and tenofovir FTC? So he appears to have no contraindications to either of those two nucleoside backbones in terms of kidney disease, bone disease, or cardiac risk factors. And I've discussed those issues in the newsletter. At high viral loads, tenofovir FTC has been preferred when it's combined with either a favorins or a boosted PI. And that's based on the result where tenofovir FTC was more effective than abacavir 3TC at viral loads of above 100,000. Now, with dolutegavir, there's less concern about high viral load because in a study comparing dolutegavir with abacavir 3TC 
versus efavirenz, tenofovir, FTC, we didn't see the difference in efficacy in patients with high viral loads. And in fact, the co-formulation of dolutegravir, abacavir, lamivudine is expected soon. So I would consider using abacavir 3TC if I were going to use dolutegravir, but otherwise my choice would be for tenofovir FTC. And we'll return with Dr. Joel Gallant from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in just a moment. Hello, I'm Jeannie Curley, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm one of the program directors of eHIV Review. If you found us on iTunes or on the web, please be sure to subscribe. This podcast is part of Johns Hopkins eHIV Review, an educational program providing monthly activities certified for CME credit and nursing contact hours with expert commentary and useful practice information for clinicians treating patients with HIV. By subscribing, you'll receive eHIV literature review newsletters and practice-based podcasts like this one directly through your email. There are no fees to subscribe or to receive continuing education credit for these activities. For more information or to subscribe to receive our newsletters and podcasts without charge, please visit www.ehivreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is Dr. Joe Gallant, and our topic is new recommendations for heart and HIV. We've been discussing how some of the new information Dr. Gallant reviewed in his newsletter issue can be applied in clinical practice. So to continue, doctor, let me ask you to bring us another patient now, if you would, please. This patient is a 54-year-old HIV-infected schoolteacher taking tenofovir FTC plus boosted atazanavir with a viral load of less than 20 and a CD4 count of 852. She has no history of resistance. She's also taking metformin for type 2 diabetes with a hemoglobin A1C of 6.2%. She's on losartan hydrochlorothiazide for hypertension, which is well-controlled, and a torvastatin with an LDL cholesterol of 95. She smokes a half a pack of cigarettes per day. And now she has an estimated GFR of 52 with one-plus proteinuria. So now in this patient, before you make any changes to her treatment plan, what other information would you want to get? This is a common scenario, and it can be a little bit confusing about how to approach this because she has hypertension and diabetes, so she has two reasons why she could have worsening kidney function and proteinuria. She's also on tenofovir, which can affect kidney function and cause proteinuria. And so I think it is important to try to find out whether she has any evidence of specific tenofovir tubulopathy. Some of the ways you can do that are to look at phosphorus excretion, specifically by looking at both the serum phosphorus as well as the fractional excretion of phosphorus, which is calculated using a simultaneous urine and serum creatinine and phosphorus and doing the standard fractional excretion equation. In her case, her microalbumin was moderately elevated and she had a fractional excretion of phosphorus of 25%. Now, in somebody with a low serum phosphorus, any fractional excretion above 10 is abnormal because, of course, with a low serum phosphorus, the kidney should be holding on to phosphorus. But in a person with a normal phosphorus, as was the case with this person, her fractional excretion of phosphorus of over 20 is abnormal. And so I think there is evidence of proximal tubulopathy here. I would certainly also consider HLA B5701 testing, and in her case, the test was negative. But there are relative contraindications here to the use of abacavir, which I discussed in the newsletter. And even with a negative HLA-B5701 test, I'm a little nervous about using abacavir in this patient. 
she has a normal serum phosphorus, a moderately elevated microalbumin, a fractional excretion of phosphorus of 25, and a negative HLA-B5701 test. So with those results, what would your next step be? Well, some people would argue for reducing the dose of tenofovir FTC and giving it to her every other day. But I would not do that in this patient because she does have evidence of tenofovir-induced tubulopathy with the high fractional excretion of phosphorus. You might consider that if you thought that the kidney issues were not due to tenofovir but were due to some other process. But in the case where you actually believe that there's tubulopathy as a result of tenofovir, I don't think it makes sense to keep giving it even at a reduced dose. I would switch her from atazanivir to another agent, probably darunavir, if there's no resistance, or possibly to an integrase inhibitor or an NNRTI, because atazanivir has also been associated with nephrotoxicity, and so we might as well get her off of that. In her case, I would not use abacavir because of the high cardiac risk. And as I discussed in the newsletter, this is a controversial association, but there still are enough studies now showing an association that I think until we know for sure, I think it's better to avoid abacavir in somebody like this who's a smoker, hypertensive, and diabetic. And so I would probably be considering a nucleoside sparing regimen, even though those are not well tested. A nucleoside sparing regimen? Which would you choose for this patient? Well, it's a great question. There's a reason that there is no specific regimen in the guidelines because there's really no perfect nucleoside sparing regimen based on clinical trial data. Every regimen that has been studied has some problem, whether it's a problem of efficacy or a problem of toxicity and tolerability. I do think that based on limited data and extrapolation from the trials we have, the best nucleoside-sparing regimens have included a boosted protease inhibitor and have also included 3TC, and you could probably extrapolate that to FTC. As I said, there are no guidelines recommending a specific regimen, but I do think that the fact that this patient's viral load is already suppressed probably increases the likelihood of success for any regimen that you could pick. So, to answer the question, I would use boosted darunavir once a day, and then there are a number of different things you would add to that. One would be just 3TC, and the Gardell study showed that lopinavir-ritonavir, a different protease inhibitor plus lamivudine, was as effective as lopinavir-ritonavir plus two nucleosides. So we have at least some data we can extrapolate from for this patient. I wouldn't use lopinavir in her because of her metabolic issues. Another possibility would be to throw in an integrase inhibitor, boosted darunavir plus dolutegavir plus lamivudine, or boosted darunavir plus raltegavir plus lamivudine. One cautionary note with dolutegavir is that it can increase metformin levels, which can be an issue in diabetics. And then still a third option, not well studied, but boosted darunavir plus etravirine, perhaps with lamivudine. We have a lot of clinical trial data on darunavir and etravirine as a combination in more heavily treatment experienced patients. We don't have a lot of data on using it as a nucleoside sparing regimen, but at least we know that those two drugs seem to go well together. And to extrapolate from a different study, we do have data showing that the combination of lopinavir-ritonavir plus efavirenz, another PI plus NNRTI combination, was quite effective in a large ACTG study. It just wasn't as well tolerated. So perhaps a different PI plus non-new combination would be preferred. But I think, you know, of course, we're you know, we're having to base decisions on some assumptions and extrapolation from other studies, which we don't like to do. On the other hand, I think there are real concerns with either tenofovir or abacavir in a patient like this, and so sometimes your hand is tied. But I do know that not everyone would agree with me here, and some people would go on and use a better tested regimen containing nucleosides despite the potential risk. 
Thank you for that case and discussion, Doctor. Let me ask you to bring us one more patient now, if you would, please. This patient is a 35-year-old woman who was diagnosed with HIV infection five years ago. She's had multiple hospitalizations for HIV and substance abuse-related problems, but has never kept follow-up appointments in the HIV clinic. She's never taken antiretroviral therapy. She has a history of depression and bipolar disorder, but has been very erratic with psychiatric follow-up and is currently on no psychiatric medications. She admits that she's depressed. She has a CD4 count of 35 with a viral load of 213,000, and her baseline genotype showed wild-type virus. She now comes to clinic for a, an appointment one week after hospitalization for pneumocystis pneumonia. She's taking trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and azithromycin that were prescribed at discharge, but she's continuing to use crack cocaine several times a week, denying active injection drug use. She knows several people who have died of AIDS and wants to start ART, preferably with something easy. So this patient, obviously she has a lot of complications to consider, aside from her HIV infection. What are your thoughts about starting her on antiretroviral therapy right away? Well, this is a challenging question. So we know from an ACTG trial that the prognosis for people with pneumocystis is better when they start antiretroviral therapy while in the hospital before discharge than by waiting. And ideally, we do that, but this is obviously a very challenging patient. However, her prognosis is very poor if she does not start antiretroviral therapy. In fact, if you look back at data from the pre-heart era, people with CD4 counts below 50 generally had a life expectancy of less than 6 to 12 months without treatment. Clearly, I would restart the medications that she had been prescribed in the past for her bipolar disorder and depression because ongoing mental illness is a big risk factor for non-adherence and treatment failure. I would refer her to psychiatry. I would refer her to substance abuse treatment if she was interested, and I would refer her to an adherence counselor. But she needs to be started on antiretroviral therapy, and I would probably choose to do it immediately because she's in the clinic now, and you don't know if she's going to be back or at least within two weeks because of her low CD4 count, her recent PCP, and her current motivation to start. We often talk about the fact that patients don't do well if they're non-adherent, but even if she were to take meds for a month and stop them after that, she would benefit from even a short course of treatment in terms of prolonging her life expectancy. So I don't think we can wait for everything to be perfect before we get her started. So when you do start her, what treatment regimen would you use? In this patient, I would probably use a boosted protease inhibitor, most likely tenofovir FTC plus once a day darunavir ritonavir. And the reason for that is because she's very unlikely to develop resistance with non-adherence. It is three pills a day, and ideally you'd like to give this patient a one pill a day regimen. But I think that in contrast to NNRTI-based regimens and probably to integrase inhibitor-based regimens, this would be preferred because no matter how non-adherent she is, she's very likely to lose options as a result of taking that regimen. The other option would be a dolutegivir-based regimen. It does appear to have higher barrier to resistance than other integrase inhibitors. And in fact, in treatment-naive trials so far, we have not seen any resistance with dolutegivir. And it's also better tolerated. But it's still not clear yet whether it has as high a barrier to resistance as a boosted protease inhibitor. And I think that has yet to be proved with longer-term clinical experience. So my choice would be a boosted PI, but if she came back to me with GI side effects from the PI that were interfering with adherence, I would switch her to dolutegivir. Uh, very specifically, doctor, in this patient, which regimens would you not consider using? I would definitely not use any efavirenz-based regimen. 
These are less well tolerated. There's a high risk of resistance with non-adherence, and she already has significant mental health issues, which efavirenz could exacerbate. So that's out of the question. I would not use a rilpivirine, the rilpivirine co-formulation. It is very well tolerated, but it's not recommended in patients with advanced disease, which she clearly has, and there appears to be even higher risk of resistance than with efavirenz. And I probably would not use the L-Vitegavir Cobacistat quad regimen. It is single tablet. It is easier to take, but I think there's a greater risk of resistance there than with Dalutegavir. As far as new agents and new therapies that are in development, which of those might change your approach to a patient with these kind of complications? We have tenofovir alafenamide or TAF coming, and the hope is that that will be a new form of tenofovir that has less kidney and bone toxicity. So that could eliminate the need for the nuke-sparing regimens that we discussed in case two. And it's likely to have less renal and bone toxicity than tenofovir without the concern about cardiac risks associated with abacavir. It's also likely to be co-formulated with FTC and with L-vitegavir cobacistat FTC and possibly even with darunavir cobacistat FTC. So in that last patient where adherence was such a big issue that if we do ever see that darunavir cobacistat FTC TAF co-formulation, it would allow for a single tablet protease inhibitor-based regimen, which would be ideal for such a patient. And then finally, I think we still may learn more about the cardiac risk of abacavir in future cohort studies, which could either confirm the association or suggest that it isn't actually an issue. And that may also help us in patients like the second patient that I discussed, where you might feel more comfortable using abacavir if future cohort studies don't show an association with myocardial infarction. While we're on the subject of potential new therapies, Dr. Gallant, let me ask your opinion about some of the presentations at the recent CROI meeting. Which one struck you as most important? One of the most important studies presented at CROI was the ACTG 5257 study, which was a randomized comparison of three initial regimens, all containing tenofovir and FTC, and then comparing boosted darunavir, boosted atazanavir, and raltegavir. The results were interesting from a pure efficacy or virologic outcome standpoint. There really wasn't a significant difference between the three. But when you looked at the combination of efficacy and tolerability, then raltegavir clearly had the advantage and was superior to the other two arms. And among the protease inhibitors, darunavir was superior to atazanavir, mainly because of less jaundice and less GI toxicity. So this was a very important study, and again, it it joins the list of a number of other studies that really indicate that integrase inhibitors seem to be the way to go for initial therapy. If it were just for ACTG5257, I would say that raltegavir was the way to go, but of course, we've seen a number of other studies looking at integrase inhibitor-based regimens compared with older standards of care that all show advantages of all of the integrase inhibitors. And it was interesting in this study because we talked a lot about the importance of once-daily therapy, and yet in this study, a twice-a-day regimen outperformed two once-a-day regimens, suggesting really that tolerability trumps convenience when there are big differences in tolerability. There were still some advantages of the protease inhibitor-based regimen, namely that patients who failed therapy on a PI didn't develop resistance, whereas people who failed on raltegavir could develop integrase inhibitor as well as nucleoside resistance. But also the raltegavir-based regimen had less effect on lipids than either of those two relatively lipid-friendly regimens. So very important study that I think will guide treatment practice.
We also heard about Duravarine, also known as MK1439. This is a new NNRTI that is in development. It appears to have some advantages in terms of activity against NNRTI-resistant virus, and we'll look forward to seeing phase three studies in treatment-naive adults. This was a phase two study that we heard about at CROI. Another very important study at CROI was the partner cohort from Europe. We've known for a while that treatment is prevention. This was best demonstrated in HPTN 052, where we saw a 96% reduction in sexual transmission when HIV-infected partners were on antiretroviral therapy. The partner study is a large cohort of serodiscordant couples, both heterosexual and homosexual, where one partner is infected and on treatment and the other is HIV negative. And in these partners, they were not using condoms and they looked at the risk of transmission from the positive partner to the negative partner and found that it was zero. They saw no transmissions among gay couples, among straight couples, regardless of the type of sexual activity. Now, of course, they point out that you can't prove a negative So they had to provide confidence intervals of that zero estimate. But as the study goes on, as more couples are recruited and as they have longer follow-up time, those confidence intervals will shrink. And I think this is quite consistent with what we saw in HPTN 052, because although I mentioned that the efficacy was 96%, in fact, there was only one transmission from a positive partner to a negative partner when the positive partner was on therapy. And that transmission occurred before the positive partners' viral load had become undetectable. And so you could argue that the efficacy of suppressive antiretroviral therapy was 100% in HPTN052, as it appeared to be in the partner study. So, you know, I think both of these two studies together suggest that there is no more effective form of prevention than antiretroviral therapy when it's effective at reducing viral load. Dr. Galland, I want to thank you for sharing your insights today. Let's wrap things up by reviewing what we've discussed in light of our learning objectives. Uh, So to begin, the currently recommended antiviral regimens and the data supporting their use. First, just to remind everyone that antiretroviral therapy is now recommended in the U.S. for everyone, regardless of CD4 count and viral load. The guidelines list quite a few recommended regimens, both for all patients and for those specifically with viral loads below 100,000. Among those, I think that the evidence supporting the integrase inhibitor-based regimens is strengthening, but there is still a role for protease inhibitor-based regimens in patients with unreliable adherence. And our second objective, the approach to patients with absolute or relative contraindications to the nucleoside analogs. Well, we discussed the rationale for use of an NRTI sparing regimen. Primarily, that would be somebody with kidney disease or possibly osteoporosis, plus either multiple cardiac risk factors or a positive HLA B5701 test. And we discussed the various NRTI sparing regimens, including a boosted protease inhibitor plus lamivudine or emtricitabine plus perhaps something else, but pointed out that none of these are well studied and none of these are specifically recommended by the guidelines. And finally, patients for whom a protease inhibitor-based regimen might be chosen for initial antiretroviral therapy. We talked about a patient with a very high risk for non-adherence and the fact that a protease inhibitor-based regimen would be a good choice here because of the fact that they're so unlikely to cause resistance with non-adherence. But keeping that in mind, it's important to remember that you can always change to a simpler regimen if the patient turns out to be adherent. Dr. Joel Gallant from the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this EHIV Review podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ehivreview.org forward slash test.
This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV. This activity has been developed for infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and other healthcare practitioners whose work or practice includes treating patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive EHIV review via email, please go to our website www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHAV Review is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Merck & Company, Inc., and VIIV Healthcare. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.